Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we're continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels number 11. In the previous episode, we learned about what John the Baptist was preaching a repentance of. He was stressing to the Pharisees and to the crowds about bearing fruit uh, with righteousness on what you do to bear fruit. Um, And then the crowds were understanding this, and then they were awaiting to see whether John the Baptist might actually be the Messiah. But we're going to find out in this episode that he's not, because we're going to be introduced to a character that is the Messiah. So anything you'd like to add before we finish out this little section? Uh, No, Uh, just a reminder, we're working through all three Gospels at the same time, and so we're going to try to be bunching them up where we can, and so we'll try and keep you informed, and we've provided uh, a PDF representation of our notes as we go through, so that you can use that if that'll help you follow through. Sweet. All right, where are we going in the text starting today? All right, so uh, as you mentioned, John the Baptist, uh, well, the... As Luke was writing, he said something to the effect of, you know, they were in expectation. They were all wondering if this John the Baptist was the Messiah. And so we're looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, and Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And I think for this one, uh, I'll just go ahead and read the Luke version. He says in verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay. <laughs> oh boy. It kind of sounds like we're in a, a Baptist church, a little fire and brimstone going oh, on, huh? Right. All right. So let's look at a few of these things. Number one, uh, he uses this phrase, he who is mightier than I is coming. Now, this may, or I could even say should, it take us back to an earlier episode, back when we were in John chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, Samuel, why don't you go ahead and read that for us? Sure. John bore witness about him and cried out, This, is, this was he of whom I said, quote, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Right. And we were, that whole discussion was about the word, um, understanding who this this Messiah was, who this person, Yeshua, Jesus was. And we see John trying to, again, claim that, look, whatever it is you think I am, this guy is way better than me, whatever that means. And this is, in a way, it's kind of help 
clarify the story some more. So you remember we had Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and their baby John. Well, they precede Mary and Joseph and their baby Jesus. And, and then we see John as he grows up, his adult life, his ministry, if we can call it that. Well, that precedes or uh, heralds or prepares the way for the Messiah, which is Jesus. So the story continues. But then we get that picture again. And I know we've, we've mentioned it a little before, and we're going to mention it many more times. It's a recurring theme. This Messiah, in this particular moment in time, is yet to come. But he was before John, which is kind of weird sounding, right? And he is already here or there, if you want to think of it that way. And so this idea of um, who was and is and is to come, you hear that coming through, right? Uh, it's just uh, we, have to, we have to try to get a hold of this idea of things existing at the same time, even though from our perspective, time gets in the way of that, like it should be coming in the future or that happened in the past or whatever. So anyway, you see more of that here. Okay. Another thing, he talks about the sandals that I'm not worthy to untie or Matthew says not worthy to carry. Um, This is something that a servant or a slave would do. This is somebody who is socially on a lower rung of the ladder. Okay, and, and, and John the Baptist is bringing that forward here. John is considering himself beneath this Messiah. He's a, a servant or a slave in comparison to Messiah. So that's also an important picture, uh, something that we could probably bring back into our own mindset, our own world, be good for us. And then, okay, now this, this is going to get good. So baptism. Number one, when we talked about baptism, we tried to make one point that was really important and clear, Samuel, that it wasn't a sprinkling or a this or that or whatever. What was baptism? It was immersion and yeah. immersion in living water. Exactly. Yeah. And remember, John's making this point right here. Uh, I baptize with water. Okay. But he, he's going to baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. John is setting up his own baptism with water as a precursor to something greater. And in this context of Messiah and his kingdom, I think we can make a pretty clear connection. So you remember, baptism represents a a purity of some kind, okay? Uh, Baptism is always used, immersion is used when there is something impure and it needs to be made pure. And so there's a physical aspect, aspect to that where the, the flesh is purified, it's, it's uh, cleansed through the water, okay? But there's always the spiritual side of it as well. But in regards to the temple and everything else, very, very physical uh, focus, Having laid that out, so there, there's some info about baptism. Bring it back to the forefront of your mind. Now, with the coming kingdom comes judgment. Now, Samuel, is judgment a good thing or a bad thing? I guess it depends. 
Right. The answer would be yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what do you mean? Well, the judgment can have two basic outcomes, right? Practically, it goes one of two ways. And and it's it wouldn't be hurtful. It, it it might be good if you just went in your head. You thought about just the court systems that we see here in America. If you go to court for anything, small or large, doesn't matter. What are the two possible results, Samuel? You can either be convicted of something, or you can be acquitted of something that you did not do. Exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, to be fair, when you are acquitted, technically, does that mean you didn't do it? No, that's just what the jury (laughs) decided for your case. Exactly. Exactly. And that is so important for us to remember in relation to God and Messiah and, and the whole idea of grace and we get the benefit of his merit with God. Does it mean that we didn't sin? Does it mean that we didn't fail? Does it mean that we aren't in reality deserving of some sort of different judgment? No, but we're acquitted anyway. We're pronounced innocent. That's, a, that's just a, it's an important, beautiful picture. But, so you brought it out, you, two good words, conviction and acquittal. So, the conviction, well, that's the fire. It's like a revining fire of wrath, I mean, if we want to really kind of exaggerate it, right? Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, the fire would be like conviction, bad judgment, if you want to think of it that way. The Holy Spirit is like acquittal or good judgment, if you want to think of it that way. So... Who is it that, that, that's getting the fire? In the context of what we're talking about, what's John preaching? Repentance. Yeah. So who gets the fire? Those that do not repent. Right. The unrepentant get the fire and the repentant get the spirit. These are not usually the words that you hear or the way it's phrased when you go to church or whatever, but it's important that we see this. And then again, uh, just to sort of drive this point home, what did we say baptism was? It's not a sprinkle, it's... It's an immersion. Yeah. So when you get the baptism of fire, it's not a sprinkle. (laughs) It's an immersion. You get the fullness of it. Yeah. And when you get the spirit, it's not just a sprinkle. You get the fullness of it. And this is this is important. We experience some of this to a degree, even now, the current age, our current lives in this time here on the earth. But there is a time to come when both of these things will be in their fullness. So, so there's a bit of a future aspect to this for us. And the pouring out of the Spirit, it's one of the hallmarks. Life in the Messianic age, it's life... Uh, in the world to come, this this uh, pouring out of the Spirit, we all know. I mean, this is this one of those big things that we talk about in the church. We get the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you do. But understand, you're going to get, I don't know what you would call it, more later, better later, something, right? right? So you're, you're saying that this pouring out of the Spirit 
is not occurring in the fullness that we will see until Messiah comes, establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem to its fullness when that when that day comes. Exactly. Yeah, it's and you know, there are going to be some people, they're going to be mad that I say it like that, and I didn't say that you don't have it now. I'm just saying there's more to come. That's all. So it's an it's a, it's a important picture to yeah, hold on to. In, in, the, in some ways, it's like in the Hebrew Old Testament text, the way that we see shadows of the coming Messiah mm-hmm. that we see in its fullness in the New Testament writings, like now we have mm-hmm. shadows of the Spirit that we will see in its fullness in the coming kingdom. Yeah, shadows of the kingdom. That's kind of uh-huh. cool. We should rephrase the Old and New Testament. Old Testament is shadows of the Messiah, and the New Testament is <laughs> shadows of the kingdom. You know what? It would do people a lot more good than calling it the Old and New Testament, because yeah. those are the worst names ever. Wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's, it is. that's a good way to think of it. Okay, and I don't know if you remember, because we've talked about baptism in the past, baptism is an outward sign of what? It's an outward sign of the commitment that you have made to be faithful, to have faith and be faithful to God. Yeah, yeah, and sort of the the little uh, pithy remark is it's an outward sign of an inward change. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's another twist on that same idea. Baptism with water represents or symbolizes the recreated man or the regenerated man. Okay. This is the way it's understood in the scriptures. All the way back, way back. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't just represent or symbolize that. It actually brings it about. That's a cool little nugget from some guy I've never met named Rabbi Lichtenstein, mostly because I'm sure he wasn't alive when I was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the, the thing is, we have that Holy Spirit bringing that about in us. And there is, from our perspective, a future time when that will be done. It won't be happening. It will have happened. It'll be in its fullness, right? This is it's right. just good. And I don't want to go down a rabbit trail too far, but whenever you say that the baptism with water represents the regenerated man and the baptism of the Spirit brings that about, could we say that it, we should treat it maybe less of this magic thing that like, oh, something's happening to me because the Spirit is now in me more? And more so, the Spirit comes into your life, and its primary role is to teach, to instruct, to help you repent, and to change your life so that the result is that you are becoming regenerated because the Spirit is showing you how to live through, you know, enacting the Torah in your everyday life. Yeah, yeah, and that is a really, really good point because so many people look at their I was born again moment or or their life as a Christian or whatever and they it's almost like uh it's almost like magic. God did this thing to me and now I'm righteous and clean and good and whatever. 
don't worry about what you see in me, just know that it's true, right? And I mean, there, there's an aspect of that that is certainly true, but it completely ignores the role, the responsibility that you have in all of that. You have to actually be regenerated, meaning your thoughts and your words and your actions become aligned with God's. You elevate his will above your own, and you simply are different. You become more like him. You image him. Well, and it's like we're going to come to a later when Jesus and the crowds and the Pharisees are with that woman who had committed adultery, and he's writing in the sand and everything and saying, cast the first stone, you know, for those who have committed no sin, and they all leave, and the woman's like, well, yeah. what about me? And she, he said, your sins are forgiven too, and then he ends it by saying, go and sin no more. Like, he's commissioning right. her to, like, you know, <laughs> go do the things now. Right, and which is exactly what John the Baptist was telling people at the river, right? And it's a consistent story. We're just emphasizing it because so often in churches, they do not. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. Ah, this is good. We could talk about that all day. Uh, but let's go on. Uh, that last little bit, uh, if you remember the part about his winnowing fork is in his hand, clearing the threshing floor, wheat in the barn, burning the chaff, all of that. Well, this is a little parable. Some people think that Jesus invented parables or he was the only one to use them. No. They were common all over the place. Jesus didn't invent them. John's using one right here, and it's to help them understand. It's to paint a picture that they can relate to. They're in an agrarian culture, right? Lots of, uh, we'd call it farming or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so he speaks in agrarian terms. You are either the wheat or the chaff. You're either going to be brought in to the barn, or you're just going to get burned. And let's, uh, this is a good one. Uh, Samuel, if you could read Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Mm-hmm. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. Yeah. And that stubble, I don't think we it's may five as well. o'clock shadow. No, it's, it's chaff. Good call. Yeah. Not, not the five o'clock shadow. Yeah. And, and notice who it is. It's the arrogant. Those are the ones who actually believe they know better. Therefore, they are elevating their own will above God's and all the evildoers. Now, most people read that and they think, oh, yeah, those are, you know, like your Hitler, Jeffrey Dahmer, Charles Manson type, you know, whatever. Okay, I'm sure they're included, but all evildoers is basically a way of saying everyone who opposes God's will, meaning you are disobedient to his expressed will, which, of course, we're going to say takes you right back to the Torah. Mm-hmm. That's where you know and understand what his will even is. So, yeah, awesome picture. Now, for those of you who are hearing this and you're thinking, Oh, yeah, there's, you know, there you go, proof for hell. Well, we're going to have a slightly more uh, subtle view 
of hell and all of those things, and I'm not going to say any more. You're just going to have to wait until later. Ooh. So take that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. But let's keep going. Let's keep going. So uh, just Luke, uh, we'll just do him all by ourselves now. Luke chapter 3, verse 18 says, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Exhortations, uh, this is an interesting kind of word. This is John uh, urging, uh, imploring, in, in some ways even teaching, uh, but he's, he's trying to push those who are hearing him toward righteousness. And when appropriate, but at the same time, he is also rebuking them in their unrighteousness. So this, this idea of exhorting others is on one hand to point out the flaws and on the other hand to point the, the right way. And so that's what he's doing. He's, I mean, okay, I was going to say obviously, but it isn't always. He's urging them toward right thinking. And that is thinking that is in line with God's. But more importantly, I mean, for sure, you got to start with the right thinking, but it can't end there. He's imploring them to put that into action. That is the gospel message. Repent. And why should I do that? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is your goal, the kingdom. So the gospel message, it's really no different for us today. It isn't just, you know, quit drinking, quit smoking, quit cursing. It's giving food and drink to the hungry. It's visiting the sick and, and those in prison. It's lifting up the downtrodden. It's bringing down the oppressor, which, okay, that last one just kind of sounds like a little bit of a tricky business. Uh, Jason Fay pointed that out for us. Thanks, Jason. Shout out, Jeffy. That's right. But... That is the difference. It, you, you can't just think it. You have to go do it. And what does it look like? Well, it looks like justice. It looks like caring. It looks like loving and mercy and all of those things. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then again, he's preaching good news. What's that good news, Samuel? It's the gospel. Yeah. What's the gospel? Repent because the kingdom is coming. That's right. Yeah. And I know we're saying it over and over and over, but that's because it's not the way you've ever heard it. And we need you to get it in your head mm-hmm. because it's, it's important. The kingdom at this point is so close. I mean, the king is actually among us, right? It's so close you could reach out and touch it. We could say that the king is coming. The truth is he's already there. Repent so you can be a part. You want to be on the right side of judgment. You want to be on the acquittal side, if you will, right? For us today, you and me, it's our thoughts, our words, our actions. They're like these little conduits of the kingdom. We bring a little foretaste of the kingdom into this world here and now because the kingdom exists now. And at the same time, it's not yet. And all you got to do is look around you, Samuel. Does, does this world and the people in it, including us, do we really look anything like the kingdom as described in the scriptures? <laughs> uh, sure doesn't seem like it. No, it's ridiculous. 
But it doesn't mean the kingdom isn't already existing. It is now, but it's not yet. And so we are like those little conduits of that. Mm -hmm. And I know sometimes this stuff sounds a little weird, but we're going to keep talking about it. So there's more on that later. And if if anybody's confused on the word conduit, this may sound like I'm being a teacher right now. But what helps me with when Paul uses that word is like with electricity, a conduit is something that allows electricity to flow through it to go from one place to the other. So in this case, with things concerning the kingdom being conduits, it's it's almost as if you are allowing a little portion of kingdom life to flow through your life into the reality today. Exactly. How am I going to get this from here over to there? Well, just run it through that conduit. Mm-hmm. Right? That's exactly what's going on. Yeah. So it's a it's a great picture. I <laughs> I used to go to this church. Uh, okay, I'm not going to use any names or anything because I don't want to either make people happy or sad. I mean, there's mixed feelings. I get it. But the preacher is it was so funny and so true. He used to be preaching, and in the middle, he'd go, "Everybody say I'm a hose," <laughs> I'm a and everybody'd go, "I'm a hose." Yeah, and and that is this picture. You're just a hose. It's a conduit. Water, living water is coming from the existing kingdom through you into this world, right? It's a conduit. It's a great picture. It's a great picture. All right. I mean, just just uh, to kind of, I think we're ready to sort of switch topics a little bit um, in the text, the scripture. And so just a final wrap-up point here is all of this story about John the Baptist uh, it's all together as serving to highlight that point that we've been making, his connection to Elijah. So final thing on this little part, uh, Samuel, why don't you read Malachi chapter 4, verse 5? Sure. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Yeah. Now, we've said it. John the Baptist isn't literally Elijah, but he is... You know, in the spirit of Elijah, Jesus himself said, if you will accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Okay. But the great and awesome day of the Lord, having gone through all of the history humankind has up to this point, we now have an expectation that this is when Jesus, the Messiah, returns. And so there will be yet another appearance of Elijah. And here's the question. We don't really know. We have to wait and see how it works out. But think about it. Samuel, when did Elijah die? Wait, I thought he didn't die. That's right. He didn't. So what's he been doing? Where's he been? What? I mean, we don't know. But the actual, the actual Elijah may in fact come back to precede Messiah on his return. How about that? It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because he didn't die, it leaves the door open for that possibility. But one way or another, Elijah is going to precede him. We get that. He's going to send Elijah before uh, the Messiah. But that is an interesting little twist on the story. It might be the actual real dude. Well, yeah. And it, it kind of upholds the traditions that traditional Judaism has been practicing 
for thousands of years, even to this modern day, especially with Passover. Like they continue to leave a seat open for Elijah. They have the kids go to the door and open it and call for him because they are, you know, anticipating, wanting that day of Elijah to descend back to earth to herald in the Messiah. So in some ways, if that occurs, it's like, wow, like even traditional Jews who are practicing Torah observant Judaism, you know, they're not doing wrong because what they're anticipating will maybe come to pass as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and Paul was clear about it. One day, all of Israel will be saved. We'll, we'll, that's a discussion for another day, but yeah, you're exactly right. Exactly right. There's so much that historically the Jews have, I don't know if you want to call it figured out or whatever. And what's funny is a lot of it, they don't see and understand and recognize how it's been fulfilled in Messiah, but buddy, they nailed it. They, they have seen some things and it's, it's good. It's good. Yeah. All right. So we're going to move now from John the Baptist, you know, and, and just like his, his basic ministry. Now we're going to move to the point where Jesus is showing up. We need a big drum roll. It's like big characters <laughs> entering the story for the first oh. real time. Yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah. I, I keep saying, oh, this is getting good, and it's just going to keep getting good, so I don't even know what that means anymore. But here we go. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, and also Mark chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, we'll read Mark's version. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, number one, in those days, well, we're talking about in the days that John was out baptizing, okay? And what's interesting, when, when you read this, you, you kind of get the idea, the suggestion that Jesus, I mean, he must have spent the majority of his life up to this point right there in Nazareth. I mean, I, I guess he could have moved and done a whole bunch of other things, but it's just... Hey, he came back from Egypt, he ends up in Nazareth, and now he's coming from Nazareth, he's come to be back. It just sounds like that's, that's where he spent his time. So that's interesting in and of itself, but I think, especially for those of us who have any sort of knowledge about any more of the story, this isn't your first time ever reading any part of the Bible, that kind of thing, we're probably starting to get a lot of questions coming up in our heads right about now. For example, is Joseph dead at this point? And and I think most people think that he probably is, but when did he die? No clue. Nobody tells us. And by the way, we, we talked about this a little bit with John the Baptist. Zechariah and Elizabeth, are they dead? When did they die? They were pretty up there when he was born. Yeah, you would think they'd be gone for sure, but something must have happened to to Joseph. But we, we don't we don't get the story, right? And here's another one. Um did Jesus come to this baptism alone? In this time and place, in this culture, it wouldn't have been, uh, how should I say this? It's, it would probably be more normal for the entire family to go to something like this, to go see John. So did Jesus come alone, bring the family? Well, Samuel, 
I'd like you to read uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Okay. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Yeah. Now, believe it or not, there are stories that continue. Uh, People believe that Jesus was an only child. Now, we know the phrase, the only begotten son of God, all that kind of thing, right? But they're talking about somehow physically, Jesus had no brothers and sisters. And I, I, I offer this. It looks like he has at least four brothers and at a minimum, two sisters. Mm-hmm. And this isn't the only place that this is spoken of. I just want to say, Jesus has a family. And if Joseph is gone, Samuel, who's the head of that family? The firstborn son. And who is that? It'd be Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Things we don't think of. Jesus has spent some measure of time, we have no idea how long, he became the head of his family. In Hebrew terms, that is called a bedav, an entire family that the father leads and then the son is being prepared to lead once the father is gone. Right. But he's been living that life. That's an important little, little nugget for our story. So hold on to that. Jesus has been the head of his household. Now, here's another question. Let's see. Samuel, we believe that Jesus has sinned how much? Uh, Zero. Okay, big fat zero. And if that's the case, and if John is a baptism, he's he's offering a baptism of repentance. (laughs) Huh? (laughs) Yeah. Why is Jesus showing up for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? You got me. Yeah. Well, I think we have everybody, including us. (laughs) It's a weird question, right? Why is that happening? Well, let's go on, see if we can find out. As it turns out, John the Baptist has the same question we do. Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. John would have prevented him that is, him being Jesus, and prevented him from baptizing, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. So, even John thinks that Jesus shouldn't be, uh, should be baptizing him. Uh, He doesn't even want to baptize Jesus. So this would seem to suggest that John recognizes Jesus for who he is. And that's going to be a little bit of a difficulty for us, Samuel, because in John, we haven't gotten there yet, it's coming up soon, John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34, John says twice, I myself did not know him. I mean, we can take it 
you know, possibly more than one way, but he seems to be saying that he didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah until he saw the Spirit descend on him. And yet right here, it's before he's baptized. So therefore, it's before the Spirit descends, all of that. And he's saying, I need to be baptized by you. It's difficult to to kind of reconcile that out completely. It, it could be that when he's saying, I myself did not know him, well, maybe it's not quite as black and white as we see it. Maybe he's just saying, he he did. He He saw something. He knew there was something, but he wasn't certain. Well, why wasn't he certain? Because God had specifically said, you will see the Spirit fall, right? Mm. It could be that. Um, but either way, I mean, the point is, you know, we're just being honest. That's a little bit of a, a strangeness. But again, it's also two different accounts. Matthew versus John, right? Witness testimony, eyewitness testimony. It's, it's uh, well, you know, we should talk about that. Imagine you're in a courtroom. And you've got four witnesses giving testimony of events. And now let's be clear. They're giving testimony of events that occurred 20 or 30 years ago. Experts today, like if, you know, just regular courtroom testimony, America, whatever, they recognize that little discrepancies like this actually reinforce the authenticity of these testimonies. See, if these texts, if these testimonies were in 100% agreement on every little point, that would actually make them less believable. So, if that's true today in a regular courtroom, whatever, and and usually not even talking about that much time having passed, if we recognize that today, we need to, I think, be reasonable and recognize that we're going to see things like this in the Gospels. It's four different eyewitness accounts, and we just need to be, you know, reasonable and fair about how we take that. We can recognize these little contradictions for what they are. We don't have to ignore them or try to pretend that they aren't a problem in any way, but we can also recognize, look, this isn't diminishing the authority, the the sacredness, or or even the, if you want to go that far, the divinity contained in these writings. It, It doesn't diminish that. It's okay, really. And since we just watched Shrek, really, really. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) That'll do, donkey. That'll do. That's right. That'll do. So, uh, I just thought that was an important point, right? We've got little contradictions. We're going to see them. The more we keep reading, we're going to have little things. They're not bad. You don't have to act like you have to hide them. Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which they actually reinforce authenticity. Yeah. And I wanted to just say really quickly, I hope it is relevant. Um, Part of the reason why those arguments are mentioned almost exclusively about the New Testament writings versus the Old Testament writings. And correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but in traditional Judaism, since the giving of the Torah and when they started actually putting it down on a scroll, like the scribes specifically 
you would have groups of men whose entire lives were dedicated to rewriting the entire Torah and the writings and the prophets over and over and over again. Um, And in some ways, we have reliability in a different sense because of that structure within Judaism. And then here in the first century, in the time of Messiah coming, like I can only imagine how much of a whirlwind it was. All of these events that transpired with Jesus' coming, the establishing of his ministry, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, the, the fact that we have these writings, these accounts at all seems like a miracle to me because I'm sure if you were in that moment, things were happening so fast that most people probably, it would be second nature for them to be writing down everything that would happen. So I just wanted to throw that yeah. cultural thing in there that things were happening really fast at the coming of Messiah, but that doesn't mean that their culture was not used to writing down things and having a priority of reliability. And and your point, it's really good, that time in between Jesus' death and the destruction of the temple when the Gospels came to us, right? Uh, this was also, um, talk about a tumultuous time. It's crazy, crazy, the kind of things that were going on in and around Israel. Um, and there's also a lot of stories where, you know what? They didn't even want to write down these accounts. They had to be kind of pushed. The apostle, now Luke, he seems to be all on board. Hey, I'll write one. But the others, uh, the, as at least as the stories go, they really weren't all, all that interested in writing this stuff down. And yet, ultimately they did, and we do have it. And so to your point, it is amazing that we have them at all. Nobody actually imagined themselves writing things that were going to be added to what they considered the scriptures. But they did want to tell the stories so that people who hadn't seen it with their own eyes could hear from the eyewitnesses. Ultimately, you know, they gave in and they did. They wanted to tell these stories. Yeah, it is amazing that we have them and and to have little discrepancies... I think it should be expected. Mm-hmm. It's it's just reasonable. For sure. Yeah. So, uh, let's see. Try to get back to the text. What were we... So, um, here's a question. Okay, we were just talking about it. What was it that Jesus is supposed to baptize with? With the Spirit and fire. Yeah. And what was John baptizing with? Water. So, when John says, I need to be baptized by you, what what baptism is he hoping for? I guess the Spirit, right? Yeah, yeah. John wants the, the baptism of the Spirit. We're still left, though. We got that question. Why does Jesus need to be baptized by John? Well, if we believe what we all say we believe, it certainly wasn't for repentance. So, let's go back. Jesus says that it's to fulfill all righteousness. Well, that sounds good, but what does it mean? First, you remember John's baptism, it's, it's for repentance. But again, Samuel, what was the ultimate goal? To bring the kingdom? Yeah. The ultimate goal of this baptism repentance is that you would experience or join in the kingdom. 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? So Jesus, by fulfilling all righteousness, by by going through this baptism, he is identifying himself with that kingdom. Also, Jesus is, he's saying that it's fitting, that somehow it's, it's suitable, it's appropriate for Jesus to do that, that that's to fulfill all righteousness. So what Jesus is doing is he's trying to do everything that is considered right and just. So there is something really, really important in this action from Jesus's perspective, something that has to do with fulfilling all righteousness. And so, do you remember how Elijah is supposed to uh, precede the uh, Messiah King? Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's this picture. We got to get in our heads to talk about this. There was the, the pattern, the way they did things. It was that every king in Israel needed to be anointed with oil. And this oil represented the spirit. So, he had to be anointed by a prophet. And then, at least in the stories where we see this happening, he's anointed with oil by a prophet, and then the actual spirit falls on the king. So if you get that picture in your head, a prophet anoints a king with oil, and the spirit descends, okay? Now, technically, that's not what's happening here, because this is John using water. But the imagery is actually really appropriate. We know that Jesus is the king. He's going he's gonna to actually operate as a king on his return, but, but we still know, because he is Messiah, he is king. And, and we're going to see it as we continue through the text. It's as if this action of baptism, it's as if this moment, it's, it's like the equivalent of anointing the king. It's using that imagery, and in that sense, it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And if you think I'm really stretching, kind of going way outside the box, wait till you see what comes next. <laughs> and it, it kind of follows what we had said earlier today about shadows of the kingdom with, yes, you know, right now it's not the technical way that a king is typically anointed but it's in the same manner, it's in the same spirit, and when the kingdom actually comes, who's to say that the actual descended Elijah won't physically anoint Jesus in Jerusalem, in the new established kingdom, in the new temple, everything like that. Right, right. So so let's do it. Let's go right to the text and see what it says. Uh, Now we're looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, and Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Um, I don't know. I think I'll pick Matthew this time. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. 
And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And there it is. The Spirit descends on him in this, you know, kind of little makeshift ceremony, right? He is the long-awaited king, the one from the line of David, the one who will sit on the throne forever. But look how Luke describes it in Acts chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. Can you read that one, Samuel? Mm -hmm. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. <laughs> yeah. Did you catch it? it says God. That, yeah, God anointed him. Anointed Jesus. What? <laughs> this is so great. So, again, okay. Am I saying, hey, this is exactly what the text is saying and it can't be anything else? Well, no. But do you see the imagery in the text? Do you see that this moment, Jesus' baptism, is very, very much like when a prophet anointed a king and the spirit descended? It's the same picture. But God's doing the anointing. Oh. I just love that. All right. So let's take a moment. Uh, sometimes there's a little confusion in these, these particular verses we're looking at right now. People argue about who saw what. And there are some people that say, well, no, it was, it was Jesus. He's the one that saw the heavens opened and the spirit coming down. And then there are others that say, well, no, it wasn't just Jesus. Jesus and John both saw it. And of course, you know, we talked about that verse coming up later in the Gospel of John where he says he saw it descend and that's how he knew. Okay, so good argument there. All of them have good arguments, by the way. And some of them say that it wasn't just Jesus or just Jesus and John. It was actually all the people that were around. They all saw it. And my response to all of those people is something like this. Remember Delmer from uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh-huh. I'm, I'm with you fellers. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter that nobody's in agreement. I'm just with them all, right? Mm-hmm. I, whatever. Just pick the one. I, I don't think it's worth arguing over. Uh, the point is not who saw it. It's, it's what actually happened, mm-hmm. right? Another interesting thing. I don't know. Well, I didn't read it, so obviously you couldn't have caught it while I was reading it. But if you were to look at the Luke version... It says that when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And so when Jesus comes up out of the water, he begins praying. Now, I only mention that because, you know what? All these little bits help us to build a better picture in our heads, more complete picture of what was happening. Mm-hmm. And we all do it. We read these stories and we try to try to create an image. I think that's good and helpful. But you know what? Don't forget the little this little piece and that little piece. They're important parts. Uh, this idea of the heavens being opened, this is also interesting, uh, just from the perspective of this was very common 
Uh, you can see this uh, throughout the Old Testament. It's very common in prophetic visions or even the apocalyptic visions or, or whatever. This idea of the person telling the story, hey, God, I, I, I got to see something. Well, what was it? Well, the heavens were opened and blah, blah, blah. That's exactly what's happening here. The heavens are opened. And then Luke says, let's see if I can find it. He says, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. And then he says, like a dove. The others also mention the dove. Okay, so this in bodily form, there's things that we need to to, to get. Uh, it was visible. That's an important part. Uh, it had shape. Okay, that's an important part. But I don't know how much more we can know about it. The spirit was in bodily form, except it does say, like a dove. But here's the part we don't really know. Did it look like a dove? Maybe. Or maybe not. It doesn't have to be. Um, was it acting like a dove, I mean, the way if you were to watch a dove coming in and landing from flight, you know, is is that what they mean, or or was it both? Uh, we don't really know, but either way, it does help us again continue to paint that picture in our mind. The only thing that I would say it's important is if you're creating that picture in your mind, don't make it an actual dove. It's not an actual dove. I. I I hate that I have to say that out loud, but they're using the dove to help you get an image in your head. The spirit wasn't an actual bird. Yeah. Okay. Can I, uh, can I give some speculation like Samuel's version of Midrashic interpretation of the scriptures? Yeah, man. Lay it on us. So this will be something that we'll get into probably much later, but... In Genesis, we've talked about in our episodes a lot that Jewish writers are referring back to the foundation of biblical story, and most of that is in Genesis. And in the Noah story, when you look at the details of what is happening, it is almost as if the flood account and after the flood with the waters subsiding and everything, it's almost a retelling of the creation story. There are lots of... Uh, little describing factors that almost play hand in hand with each of the days of creation with uh, light and being separated from darkness, waters being gathered into one place and then separating the creation, recreation of plants and animals and land and everything. But in that story, there is a dove. Noah sends out a dove over the waters to kind of give an account of whether the flood has receded enough for man to be inhabited. So I just wonder if in that recreation, retelling of the creation story in Genesis, if the rabbis see the dove as the spirit. Yeah, that is a, that's a really good question. And I wish I could say definitively one way or another, I can't, Mm -hmm. but that's a really good point. So you had the, the spirit hovering over the waters. You had the dove going out to see Right, he brought back the little branch in his hand, right? Mm-hmm. Or in, <laughs> in his hand. <laughs> in his beak, whatever. Maybe he had it in his little 
you know, do dove have talons? Can yeah. we give them that kind of a... <laughs> do the chickens have large talons? <laughs> I love that movie. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, you're, the picture, though, I think is great, Samuel. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> uh, we we, we got to keep some of this in here, but I know we'll have to cut some stuff out, but it's just too, oh. gu- too good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that was so good. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, okay, so... Yeah, I mean, you've got the spirit hovering over the waters, and then you've got the dove going out, bringing back the branch. You've got this where the, the dove is descending and, and relating that to creation. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to push it too far and, you know, s- start getting goofy or anything, but you might even think of it as that maybe that's the moment when coming into his kingship in some sense. And and we could, I don't know, even imagine it as the, the beginning of the kingdom itself. Uh, these are all uh, such great pictures. Mm-hmm. Such great pictures. Yeah, I agree. Whew, that was a good laugh. Yes, it was. Uh, okay. Let's see. So another thing, Matthew says that the Spirit came to rest on him. And I'm going to highlight this because I think this is a really important point. You don't see it so much in the other the other text, but this spirit it it's, it came to him, or or maybe you think it was brought to him, whatever. But it it entered him, it resided in him. And again, the text isn't overly explicit here, and and you may feel like I'm I'm bringing more out of it, but it's important that we get this image. Uh, and, and I think it's the right image. The spirit at this moment set up, we could call it a, a permanent residence in him. And, and I think it's permanent enough. I think that we could even say, even at the cross, kind of permanent. But again, that's a discussion for a much later episode. We'll get there. The point is, Get that image in your head that the Spirit has come. He's setting up permanent residence in Jesus, and this is important for the rest of the story. Um, I'm going to go, uh, John, uh, Samuel, if you could read from John, chapter 1, verse 32. Sure. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Right. It remained on him. It's very important. How about also read, uh, not all of it, just uh, that first part of Isaiah 11, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Yeah, and that rest, that is to to settle or be settled. And as we'll see later, uh, that's also not mentioned here, but it's going to come up. It's the full measure of the Spirit. So, uh, boy, there's some other things. I know we're, this is going to end up being just a hair long, but that's okay. We're, we we got to get this out. Um, another question. We, we've already talked about it a little bit. If, if Jesus is God, well, then why did he need the spirit? Well, 
This is going to go back to what we've said before, and I'm going to try to expound on it just a little bit more here. It's because he was living as a human. And I'm going to go to like the, so one of the go-to scriptures is from Philippians chapter two, it's verses five through eight, and it includes that little bit about emptying himself, taking the form of a bond servant, okay? But what does this mean? And so I've thought about this, rather than trying to get this idea in your head that somehow Jesus, um, he was stripped of his divine nature, or or he actually, you know, like stripped himself of his divine nature. I don't think that's a good picture. We need to think of it more like Jesus choosing to limit himself, or maybe we could say accepting the limitations of living as a human. And this is exactly like Remember we talked about the word, how that was God, but it was it was a limited version of him because it was operating within creation mm-hmm. in a similar fashion. I think this is analogous. Jesus has that divine nature in him, but he is choosing to limit it. He wants to experience and and function as a human. He's fully God, fully man, but self-limited. It's voluntary, right? And you could go to, here's another one, Samuel. Uh, actually, I've pulled a little snippet out here. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Read that part. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Yeah, and that's, I think, a very similar idea, right? J- j- for people... Uh, there are some who might listen to this podcast and think that we're somehow trying to, you know, uh, diminish Jesus's divinity. We're not. We hold a very high Christology. We say that Jesus was God, period. We're not arguing with that. But we do still want to eff- emphasize that the life he lived here on earth, he was living as a human, self-limited. And so therefore, this is back to our question. Why did he need the Spirit? Well, he needed the Holy Spirit in every way, exactly like we do. He was living as the consummate human, the true human. And this should give us all great hope for how we live out our lives in obedience to God with the Holy Spirit. We should live with every expectation that we can be like him. Instead of saying, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No. How about recognizing that you are a saint, that you have the Holy Spirit, and that you have the same ability that Jesus had? Are you going to be perfect? No. You've already blown it. We all get that. But it shouldn't stop you from pursuing it because it's for your good. Mm-hmm. Such an important picture. So I just need to take some time. I had to get that out there. You gotta know. Jesus needed the Spirit because he's living as a human. We're not, 
diminishing his divinity in any way. Yeah, a picture that comes to my mind when I'm thinking about it, and the, if this hopefully this isn't too wonky, but you know how we say the heart of a man or trusting in the Lord with all of your heart. That's a yeah. very Hebraic concept where actually when they're meaning the heart, it's more about your mindset, your your thinking, your act, yes, uh, that results yes. in action, that kind of thing. But it's almost as if God chose to encapsulate all of his character traits, all of his personality, if you want to call that, his nature, his values, into that heart, the or actually the mind, the brain of Jesus as a functioning, normal human being. And then with the Spirit came all of the miraculous things that we see starting now. But you yeah. know, before, it doesn't diminish his divinity because the way that he lived showcases those character traits of God within the heart of himself and his mind and how he operated with the Torah. Yeah. Yeah. He is actually being the true image of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah it's, yeah, it's such a great picture. And I think so much better for us, his disciples, because I think it, it helps us get grounded as to who and what we are. It's a great thing. Yeah. All right. Maybe just a couple final points. Don't want to don't just brush over them, but uh, we'll, we'll move quickly. Uh, it talks about a voice from heaven. And um, for whatever reason, there are arguments about this too. It seems to me from the text that we are to assume that this is God himself speaking. Uh, there are some who suggest, well, it's it's not actually God. It's the Spirit while he's descending. Well, okay, uh, maybe. Uh, you know, I guess it doesn't bother me either way, but it looks like God's speaking to me, and so, so that's the way we're taking it for whatever that's worth. We do also see a little bit of discrepancy between the texts, like where in one case it says, this is my son, and another one says, you are my son, or with whom I'm pleased, or with you I'm pleased, that kind of stuff. Boy, there's, again, this goes back to the arguments about who's actually hearing the voice, and, you know, was it just Jesus, Jesus and John, the whole crowd, whatever. I don't know how important it is, and and I don't know how much I care from my perspective, I just kind of feel like I think everybody saw it. And and if they didn't, well, you know, Jesus and John did, and that's enough, whatever. Uh, but anyway, just kind of wanted to point that out. This, You know, that's part of that argument. And then I guess one more interesting thing. So Psalm 2, and, and you may already be familiar with this or not, it's, it's very widely considered, uh, consistently uh, regarded as a Messiah psalm, a Messianic psalm. And Samuel, why don't you go ahead and read uh, Psalm 2-7. Mm-hmm. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Right. So the you are my son part, I mean, obviously, super clear connection there, right? So so we understand. I mean, think about it. Who's talking? God. Ah, Let's look at Isaiah 42, uh, chapter 42, verse 1. Read that one for me, Samuel. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Yeah. 
And so here we see the phrase, my chosen, that's for all practical purposes, the equivalent of my beloved. Uh, so you are my, my loved son, um, in whom my soul delights. That's very equal to with you, I am well pleased, right? So you can, you can see the connections there. The reason I bring this up is if we look at Psalm 2-7, if we look at Isaiah 42-1, what we see is God himself appears to be using the same approach to the scriptures as we've been seeing our gospel writers using all along. They're going back, finding text, bringing it forward, and applying it to the current situation when it actually fits the big picture, the big story. So... (laughs) Isn't that great? It's almost as if God is upholding the way the story's been written all along. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think I think we need to recognize that. Just it's I don't know. It's just a great picture. Um I think we're going to I think we're going to cut right here. Um I don't know that this is next necessarily a a good stopping point, but it's the best we've got cuz we've been going fairly long. So let's cut this thing right here. And uh, we will pick up uh, the story just on the next episode. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standards Time so that you never miss an episode. Our podcast is now pretty much on every available podcast platform. So just check your laptop or your mobile device, search Okie Dokimos, and start listening. You can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.